Welcome to the GUP Podcast. I'm Mary McQueen, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK, and current visiting research fellow at the National Cancer Institute in the USA. In my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month I'm discussing the Editor's Choice manuscript from the January issue presented by Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald and colleagues entitled British Society of Gastroenterology Guidelines on the Diagnosis and Management of Barrett's Esophagus. This is a diagnosis that we are confronted with very often as gastroenterologists. There's been some debate and controversy surrounding this topic. The previous guidelines were published in 2005, so this update is a welcome guideline in clinical practice. I'm delighted to welcome two authors here today. Professor Rebecca Fitzgerald and Dr. Massey De Pietro from the MRC Cancer Unit, Cambridge University in the UK. Welcome to the podcast. And just to start, can you remind us of the epidemiology of Barrett's esophagus in the UK and the potential consequences of this diagnosis? Yes, thanks, Mary. Um, so the exact estimates of the prevalence of Barrett's esophagus in the UK isn't well documented. But we have got two um, fairly recently published population studies, one in Italy and one in Sweden. And there, the population prevalence of Barrett's in these countries was around one in every 75 individuals, or 1.5%. We know that it increases in the presence of patients with reflux symptoms. And in a UK study um, of individuals in primary care who had some reflux symptoms, about 3% had Barrett's esophagus. And there are US studies showing that when the symptoms are chronic and severe, the prevalence can rise to as much as 15%. So, So there's a bit of a variation depending on the the degree of symptoms, but I think that gives us some idea. So it's pretty common, actually. And of course, the consequence of the diagnosis is this potential to go on and develop cancer. Um, But the important thing is that not everybody, of course, with Barrett's esophagus will develop cancer. So, So the important thing in managing these patients is to make sure they understand the relevance of the diagnosis, um, to enter them into monitoring where appropriate, and we'll talk about that, but to not scaremonger and to to also emphasise that their um, absolute risk is low. So who was involved in producing these guidelines and what was the methodology employed? So this this was very much a collaborative uh, project. 21 authors in total took part. And what we did was divided ourselves into eight working groups to take the different um, topics in turn. And the authorship spanned different disciplines, which included gastroenterology, surgery, pathology, as well as experts in socioeconomics, um, health economy. And we had two patient representatives as well. And what we did was for each statement, we reviewed the evidence. We then came up with a recommendation and then the whole authorship voted and we had to reach 80% consensus amongst the group and for us to accept the recommendation. And if there was below 70% um, agreement, then we would rework the statement until we achieve that 80%. And in the guideline, we have given information, the published guideline, about how many rounds of voting were taken. So you can get some idea of the uh, statements which were more controversial. The paper starts by highlighting a series of key questions in relation to this topic. And this denotes the structure of the detailed evidence and conclusions thereafter. And each question has been answered with key recommendations outlined in the executive summary. And given the time we have available today, I think it'd be useful to work through from this question list and discuss the main points that have been highlighted. So the first question relates to the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. Tell us more about this. So um, the diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus is a synthesis of clinical 
that's endoscopic information and pathological information. And I think the group all felt very strongly that it needs to be these two pieces of information that are brought together. So it's not only endoscopy, it's not only pathology. And the endoscopist needs to see a clearly visible segment of Barrett's esophagus, which we agreed meant that there was at least one centimeter in length. And then the pathologist needs to have biopsy evidence that confirms that there's columnar epithelium um, represented in that biopsy, which can have gastric or intestinal differentiation. So um, there's a, a Danish study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and they were trying to look at the cancer risk in Barrett's, but for them, the only records they had available with their nationwide survey was the histopathological diagnosis of intestinal metaplasia. And um, that study kind of highlighted a problem where you only have the pathological information without the endoscopy, because then you can have sampling bias from IM of the cardia. So, um, so just to emphasize, it's endoscopy and histopathology. Now, the other thing is that there's been a lot of discussion about the difference between the UK and the US diagnosis. Um, in the US, they say it has to be intestinal metaplasia only because that's the type which most predisposes to cancer. We completely agree it is the type that most predisposes to cancer. But our understanding of cancer risk is evolving all the time. And so we've separated out the diagnosis from the risk stratification, which we'll discuss later. So we say that if there's endoscopically visible columnar lined epithelium, that on a biopsy is columnar lined, which is gastric or intestinal, then that is Barrett's esophagus. How you then manage that patient will depend on other factors, which we'll discuss. So we suggest that the whether you enter them into surveillance and how often and things should depend on whether there's intestinal metaplasia and how long the segment is. Well, that follows into the next issue, which is one of surveillance. And this has been the focus of some controversies with conflicting evidence presented previously. And certainly a consensus recommendation on surveillance will be very welcome, I'm sure, to try and standardise the management of these patients. And this issue is central to several of the key questions listed. But firstly, can you outline the recommendations on surveillance following a diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus and discuss whether there are any clinical features that denote high cancer risk that should alter the frequency of an individual patient's surveillance plan? Thank you. So we do recommend surveillance when there's a um, diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus. And we do suggest, and this is new, that there should be some tailoring of the, the frequency of surveillance. So they came about this because of the recent evidence from two population studies and one large meta-analysis that show that the cancer risk in Barrett's is lower than we previously thought. And the two features which particularly seem to influence the risk of cancer are the presence of intestinal metaplasia and the length of the Barrett's esophagus. Uh, it's difficult to identify a precise cutoff for the length, but most publications said three centimetres, and that's the evidence base we have. So we kept with three centimetres. So the frequency of surveillance is greater, is more frequent in patients with three centimetres or more with intestinal metaplasia. The other factors which might increase the cancer risk are being over 50 years of age and male sex and obesity, but we felt there wasn't enough evidence here to make a practical um, recommendation on those parameters. So the executive summary contains a section on the practical considerations of an endoscopic surveillance programme. Tell us more about this. So we were really keen that these um, guidelines were as practical as possible. Um, and there are flowcharts too, so that really these provide what we hope is a useful algorithm for managing patients. 
So for patients with a short segment of Barrett's, that's less than three centimeters, what we really want to, what really matters is whether we see intestinal metaplasia on the biopsy, because we know that if the segment's very short and there's no intestinal metaplasia, then it's possible that there's just missampling of a hiatus hernia. And anyway, the cancer risk is very low. So what we say is that there should be two repeat endoscopies, so two consecutive endoscopies to, to check the length and check if there's intestinal metaplasia present. If it really is very short and there's no IM, then we say you should consider discharging the patient from surveillance because probably the risks of monitoring them are greater than the risk of them getting cancer. But there's leeway there, so you can tailor that to the individual. If there's intestinal metaplasia present within a short segment, then we would recommend surveillance in three to five years. And we deliberately left an interval there. We didn't stipulate it was just three years or just five years, so that that can be tailored given the um, practical, you know, relevant considerations for that patient, how generally fit they are, what their personal preferences are, and so on. So that, for example, if you had a 70-year-old man who was overweight, um, perhaps he had a family history or something, that might alter the way you approach this and the frequency compared to a, a, a female who was 45, who wasn't overweight with no family history. Segments of three centimeters or longer should be surveyed every two to three years. And that's regardless of the histological cell type found on biopsies, because we know that if the segment's longer, there's very likely to be intestinal metaplasia there. And if you don't see IM every time, it's probably just because of sampling bias. So what are the key recommendations for the management of Barrett's associated dysplasia? Yeah, so dysplasia is really a wide spectrum of uh, pathological diagnosis which range, as we know, from indefinite for dysplasia to low-grade and high-grade dysplasia. I would just like to remind our readers, indefinite for dysplasia is a condition whereby the pathologist cannot make a reliable diagnosis of definite dysplasia, and this is most likely related to uh, inflammation, but doesn't necessarily mean that uh, there is no dysplasia, so it's something we should definitely follow up. Now, the recommendations for indefinite for dysplasia and high-grade dysplasia are quite straightforward. We recommend a repeat endoscopy in six months for patients with indefinite uh, for dysplasia after high-dose PPI. Whereas for patients with high-grade dysplasia, we clearly agreed that endoscopic ablation is the best management. And this is, of course, due to the significant risk of progression of this condition, even at a short uh, follow-up. The management of uh, low-grade dysplasia, I have to say, was probably one of the most controversial issues during this uh, project. And this is uh, partly due to the fact that uh, uh, there is recent evidence from a European multicenter randomized control trial led by Professor Bergman in Amsterdam, uh, in which they um, uh, randomized patients with low-grade dysplasia conferred by a central pathologist into two groups. So either radiofrequency ablation or surveillance. And this trial finds found a striking um, difference in the progression rate to high-grade dysplasia and cancer uh, from 26% in the surveillance group uh, to only 1% in the uh, treatment group. Uh, so these results were not published at the time of the literature review, so could not be uh, formally um, uh, introduced in the um, uh, list of evidences. But we know clearly that a diagnosis of low-grade dysplasia has a certain degree of uncertainty, and this is due to a very high inter-observer variability even among uh, expert GI pathologists. So for this reason, we felt um, unsure about placing an absolute indication for radiofrequency ablation in patients with low-grade dysplasia, and we agreed that this should be surveyed on a six-monthly basis. 
There might be particular cases in which we feel that this low-grade displays is associated to high risk profile, and then we could take into consideration endoscopic treatment, but this must be reviewed within an MDT setting. Then I would like, uh, would like also to mention the um, fact that these uh, Barrett's guidelines for the first time introduced um, a biomarker which might be useful in patient management, and this is um, immunohistochemistry for P53 which has been uh, shown to be a useful adjunct in the pathological diagnosis of dysplasia. And we recommend it in favor of the use of P53 immunohistochemistry, especially when there is um, a um, problematic interpretation of histological patterns. Are there any specific management issues related to Barrett's associated adenocarcinoma? Yes, I think this is um, one of the areas where these guidelines marked uh, a significant step com forward compared to the um, 2005 guidelines. We now know the endoscopic therapy for Barrett's-associated adenocarcinoma is safe and effective and is uh, uh, correlated to lower morbidity and mortality compared to surgery. Therefore, endoscopic therapy, uh, and in particular endoscopic mucosal resection or EMR, should be considered the gold standard for the management of an adenocarcinoma uh, confined to the mucosal layer. And of course, this is also um, impacting on the decision up front whether to suggest endoscopic surveillance to patients, especially where they are borderline uh, fit, because they need to be fit for endoscopic therapy now and not anymore for surgery. Of course, the management of um, uh, malignant disease extending to the submucosa um, is a different issue, and we agreed that the gold standard for this uh, condition remained surgery due to the high risk of uh, nodal metastasis in these patients. So there's clearly a recommendation for endoscopic-based therapy um, for uh, complications of Barrett's esophagus, but let's discuss the, some training aspects of this and also the service provision. So can you tell us more about that? Yes, these are a little bit of controversial issues because, uh, of course, there isn't a lot of data published out there in the literature. Uh, there is a study from the Amsterdam group uh, in which they looked at the complication rates during endoscopic uh, mucosal resections in a cohort of trainees. And what they found is that the complication rates during the first 20 procedures uh, was higher uh, than in the following uh, procedure. Um, for this reason, we um, thought that um, a, a successful uh, training for endoscopic therapy for uh, Barrett's-related high-grade dysplasia and uh, neoplasia uh, should really um, be uh, undertaken through uh, 30 supervised cases of uh, endoscopic resection and uh, endoscopic uh, ablation. Uh, and this is really to acquire the sufficient competencies for uh, uh, the management uh, of uh, uh, patients with uh, Barrett's-related neoplasia. Uh, the service provision is um, also a very controversial um, issue. We all agreed in principle that um, uh, this type of endoscopic therapy should be performed in high-volume tertiary referral centers, but there wasn't really anything that we could refer to to set a, a definite number for the uh, amount of procedure that should be done yearly within a center to qualify as high-volume uh, tertiary referral center. So we uh, informally made uh, a cutoff, which is 15 endoscopic resection per year, for a center to be um, kind of acknowledged as a high-volume center, although this is not part of a 
formal recommendation where we just say that endoscopic therapy for Barrett's related neoplasia should be done in uh, high volume centers. If a patient receives endoscopic based therapy, what follow up should be in place? So we now know that the uh, long-term remission for um, patients with early Barrett's neoplasia after endoscopic therapy reaches 90%. Um, and a large cohort study from the German group in Wiesbaden um, has shown that, the, um, however, that the risk of uh, metachronous cancer at five years in patients uh, treated with an endoscopic resection for uh, Barrett's associated adenocarcinoma and where their virus was not uh, systematically ablated uh, was 15% at five years. So for this reason, we recommend systematic ablation of virus after an EMR. However, even in these patients uh, that reach uh, successful eradication of virus one year post to the start of the uh, endoscopic ablation therapy, the recurrence rate can be as high as 25% as showed by um, the UK and US registry at five years. Um, therefore, while we uh, are acquiring now longer follow-up data, uh, the recommendation is to monitor these patients post-endoscopic ablation. There isn't enough data to recommend a specific pattern of uh, uh, follow-up, but um, we felt reasonable that um, uh, this patient should receive multiple endoscopies in the first year uh, and then yearly follow-up. Uh, thereafter. So let's consider whether there's any chemo prevention strategies that can be employed to avoid disease progression and the development of malignancy. So can you tell us more about that? Yes, uh, there are a few observational studies that have shown that patients with viruses offered as on PPI have a significantly lower cancer progression rate compared to patients not treated with PPI. And this has also been confirmed by recent meta-analysis, which could not be included in the um, bibliography as only re very recently published in November in the uh, in, in, in GAP journal. Um, however, there are ethical difficulties related to designing a randomized controlled trial uh, of Barrett's patients treated and not treated with uh, uh, PPI. So this will probably prevent us to have conclusive evidence on the role of uh, PPI as uh, chemopreventive uh, agents. At the present time, however, the use of PPI in patients with Barrett's esophagus is recommended, but not as a chemopreventive agent, but just for symptomatic control. With concern to the NSAIDs, and in particular aspirin, we are of course waiting for the results of the ASPECT trial, which is uh, a randomized controlled trial investigating the uh, cancer preventive effect of two different doses of aspirin and isomeprazole. And for this reason, we could not um, issue a definite recommendation. So I guess this will be probably the topic, one of the topics of the uh, next guidelines. So let's now discuss screening for Barrett's in the general or high-risk population. What's the current evidence for and against this? And what's the current consensus? So we do know that the majority of patients with Barrett's esophagus are undiagnosed and we discuss this in the, in the guidelines. And of course, if the majority of patients are undiagnosed, they don't have the opportunity for surveillance. And this will impact on our ability, even if we had a perfect surveillance program, to reduce population mortality from esophageal cancer. But many of the considerations for screening uh, come down to cost effectiveness. So the, the previous uh, AGA guidelines recommend screening if there are multiple risk factors, and we've taken a similar viewpoint 
but we've been a little bit more specific. So we recommend that um, screening should be considered if there are chronic reflux symptoms and multiple risk factors by which we mean at least three of age 50 or more, white race, male sex or obesity. And we also do say that that threshold for endoscopy should be lowered in the presence of a family history. In other words, you don't have to have multiple risk factors if you have a family history. It would be reasonable to recommend a screening endoscopy. And I think in the future, what we need really is better, more cost-effective tools to really make screening a practical reality to be feasible. And there are some promising new tools um, upcoming. Um, the Cytosponge is one that I'm been working on in particular that we, we comment on, um, but more data are awaited on this. And currently a, a large study is just completing um, over a thousand patients and that will be published hopefully 2014. So I think as these data come through from things like Cytosponge, from um, other slimmer um, endoscopes and uh, blood tests potentially in the future, then we'll really be able to perhaps consider more systematic screening. But for as long as it remains gold standard white light endoscopy, I think we have to be a bit pragmatic in what's manageable within our health service. And finally, what does the future hold for this topic? What do you think are the key areas that require focus from a research perspective? So I think the gratifying thing doing these guidelines was that, you know, we have made progress since 2005 and uh, there were new things to recommend. But on the other hand, there are outstanding issues that we still really don't have the answers to and where further research and trials um, we feel should be priorities for policymakers and funders so that we can make more progress. So as I just mentioned, non-endoscopic tests for diagnosis and surveillance would be, be very um, worthwhile and to really understand the impact of screening and surveillance on quality of life. There is progress being made with the use of advanced imaging modalities to, modalities to improve our detection of dysplasia um, and to make surveillance more cost effective. At the moment, we recommend standard one white light endoscopy, but more work is needed in this area. There's still information we don't know about the natural history of Barrett's, especially when it's short, very short segments or with low grade or with a particular molecular profile. And I think our whole um, ability to really understand the molecular pathogenesis of disease has just undergone a paradigm shift recently with all the sequencing technology and things. So hopefully we'll have a lot more information in the next five years. As, as Massey said, we don't currently recommend low-grade dysplasia for all patients, but there's a randomized control trial just about to publish on that. Um, and I think we need to continue that debate and uh, work with NICE to see whether our guidelines might change on that in the fairly short term. And then we need to know about the durability of the mucosa following endoscopic therapy. You know, do these patients need to come back for long-term surveillance after they've had ablation? Or at some point, can we, can we let them off the hook? And that has big implications for our cost effectiveness. Chemo prevention is still outstanding as we discussed. More data needed on health economics and quality of life, which tend to be rather um, understudied. So I think these are all areas for more work in the future. Well that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to thank both Rebecca Fitzgerald and Marcy Pietro for joining me today. Thank you very much.